I remember my CEO once telling me this idea that you want to make enough money so you can do the things you want for your family and your kid and maybe retire early or whatever your goal is. That's a really crappy why. And the reason is it's a very inefficient fuel because it's very self-centered. Everyone is in sales in one capacity or another, whether that's selling to customers, selling an idea to your boss, or selling the idea of a new vegetable to your five-year-old. To chat about this idea with me today, I have professional salesman and host of the Reclaiming Sales podcast, Robert Gillette, joining me on the microphone. We're going to take a walk through Robert's journey from a time when he never imagined a career in sales to his vision of stealing back the idea of sales as a profession you can do with honor and integrity. Hi, Robert. Thank you so much for joining me on the Mindset Mastery podcast today. How are you going? You know, it's going rather well. My kids are in bed. I'm in the United States on the, on the West Coast. So I literally just put them to bed and had dinner. And now I'm here and I'm very excited. Thank you for having me. Good timing. Good timing. We are going to be talking all about sales today. And I want to start actually by referencing the title of your own podcast, Reclaiming Sales. Tell me a little bit about that and why you started the podcast in the first place. Yeah. So in truth, I started the podcast because I had the podcasting equipment and I, I've just always wanted to have a podcast. I love the idea of podcasts. I, I love the technology of the microphone and the, and I talk for a living. So why not just keep doing that? I think the reason why I chose this podcast is because I am a third generation sales guy and I never wanted to go into sales. Grandpa did it. Dad did it. I saw how hard it was on mom. I saw how little I saw of my dad growing up. I didn't, I mean, there were lots of benefits. My dad's a good dad. He did a great job raising us. He raised five kids and had, we had everything we ever needed. And that's really obviously hard to do for anyone. So I didn't, as a kid, understand the positives of that kind of a lifestyle that my mom didn't have to work, but I just knew that it was stressful and I knew that it was hard. And then I also grew up seeing things like, you know, sitcoms that talked about creepy sales guys and used car salesmen. And I just didn't understand at the time when I was younger that you could be, that I could be the version of myself I wanted to be and be in sales. So I ran from it for a really long time. And it wasn't until my early thirties that I took my first sales job and realized how everything I've been doing in my life up until that moment had been sales I just, I was bad at it because I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't own it. And so I started this podcast, Reclaiming Sales, because I really want to steal back. I want to reclaim this idea that, you know, sales isn't, it can be something you do with honor. It can be something you're proud to do. And my hope is, you know, that my big, hairy, audacious goal is that when my four-year-old son goes to college, he can get a bachelor in sales, which I don't know anyone that offers that. And it can be just as laudable as, you know, an accounting degree or a journalism degree or anything else. Just, oh, sales, cool, man, awesome, good job. So that would be, that's that's kind of why I started this podcast. Yeah, that is great. Let's unpack that idea for a minute that you said everything you were doing was sales. And I think that is the same for most of us in our lives and we don't actually realize it. Just talk me through what you mean by that. So you know, there, there may be some hyperbole there, but I honestly believe that everyone is in sales. 
whether that's trying to get one company to spend a million dollars a year on your product, or if that's trying to get your kids to eat broccoli. Like everything is sales. Every job is sales. Everyone has some function of sales in their life. And I think the the way that I, I want to explain that is that sales is kind of a continuum. And there's, let's say there's on one side, all the way to the left is, let's say a product, like a flashlight. And then on the other side is something really complicated, some kind of specialty service. So if you're in sales and you sell flashlights, your job is to get people to buy a flashlight, Just get, you know, get them to buy your flashlight. And when you, when, when I buy a flashlight these days, I don't need a salesperson. I go to Amazon. I, I figure out the one I want that has the, the features that I want for the price that I want. And then I just buy it. So maybe you read the reviews or whatever. And then, then I buy it and then I have a flashlight. Ooh, it's not that hard. But when we get to specialize things, things that I, I don't know what it should cost. I don't know where to get it. I don't know how to buy the right one. Think like an estate plan, <laughs> you know, or a divorce attorney. Like I'm not, I don't know how to hire those people. I don't know how to pick a good one. And so I don't mind a bit of a sales process when I do that. Uh, but even when we get to like, let's say that commodity, that, that product, like a, like a flashlight, I actually believe that everyone in the world loves being sold to. People say, I don't want to be sold. I want to buy. And I don't think that's true at all. Every one of us loves to be sold to. And I'll tell you, this is true because we save up money to go to restaurants. And that is literally, we're walking in the door and saying, sell me something. And then they give you a menu and you maybe ask about the specials, but you've made up your mind to buy a thing and someone's going to sell it to you. And, and you're going to be happy, hopefully, unless it tastes bad. So sales is all around us and it's what we do. And all of us actually love it. But somewhere along the line, there's like this misalignment about what we want and what people want and what people do. And, I, and I'm still trying to figure out what that is. And that's another thing I really want to uncover in my podcast is why do we hate salespeople so much and how do we fix that? Yeah. Where did we go wrong? I think, like you said, the word has become kind of a dirty word. We have that idea of the creepy salesman. And even to the point that you feel uncomfortable selling to people just as much as you think you feel uncomfortable with the idea of being sold to. So how can we flip that from a salesman's point of view, selling to a customer? Say if you're in small business like myself and having to sell to my customers, mm. how do you approach that in a way that you don't feel uncomfortable about it? You know, there, there, there's the hard thing, you know, the hard thing about hard things. And I'm not joking. People who can figure out how to do that for themselves will never be unemployed and will never be poor. And it's, there's the easy answers. There's the way to explain, like, here's my winning lottery ticket. Let me give you my three-step process, you know, and every sales influencer in the world wants to sell you theirs. And I'm not saying that there aren't answers for people there. But unfortunately, it's just not that easy because if it was, everyone would do it. So I'll tell you a little bit about, a little bit about my winning lottery ticket is that for me, I have to believe in what I'm doing. So I work for an IT support company right now, and I had to learn a lot about the industry and this company and other companies. I sat with competitors. I interviewed for jobs at other competitors just to understand better what I was doing at my company. 
And it wasn't until I really believed in my heart that their value proposition made sense that I really started to be successful. Now, there are some people that can sell ice to an Eskimo, and that's fine. I'm sure that you know they're not bad people. But for me, I if I believe in my heart that there's value for the person I'm talking to, I'm not as worried about whether or not they see me as a salesperson. So that's the first one. That's in my in my own headspace, I have to know there's value, which also means I have to be able to be really good at identifying when there is no value. And part of that is if you ever want to feel like you are in power, just like owning your world's superpower salesperson, learn how to say no to people. The salesperson always wants to say yes. The salesman that's like trying to just make ends meet. Oh my gosh, this is so hard. He says yes to everything. But when a prospect says to me, hey, you guys do this? And I go, you know, we don't. Is that important to you? Like that, it sets you apart in their mind and in yours. Because a salesperson that's willing to say no is one whom you can believe their yeses. So that's the second thing. First one is believe in what you do. The second one is know who shouldn't buy it and when to say no. And then I would say a third thing, and this is the third of like a bajillion things. So this is just the next one that comes to my mind is be obnoxiously obvious about your incentives. I love getting on a call with a prospect and going, hey, before we get too far into this, I just want to call out, I get paid at my company to bring in new revenue. That is literally my job. That's how I keep my friends employed. So obviously, if there's a way I can take your money, I'm going to do it. But I don't want to steal your money. I would like to get it like ethically. So I really want to find out if there's value here. So I'm going to ask some questions. And the more honest you can be about the questions, the better and quicker I can be about figuring out if there's value. Does that sound fair? And when you're obnoxiously obvious about what it is you're looking for, I think people are willing to engage and accept it or they're not. But there's no point in trying to sell something to someone who doesn't trust you. And if you're not clear about your incentives and why you're doing this and, and like what's in it for you, I think that even if they know in the front of their mind, logically, I invited a salesperson to come into my office, they're going to try and sell me something. Calling it out in that moment kind of takes the, the air out of the balloon and it reminds everyone, hey, look, yeah, I'm here to take your money if I can, you know, but I don't want to steal it. And I think those three things for me are really foundational to my ability to go ask a company for millions of dollars. Yes, I think a lot of people, you know, when you've got the salesperson that's going to walk through the door, they're probably prepared or have the idea that they're going to be deceived in some way, just because of the way that we may have got this idea, either that's the way salespeople are, but you know, you're saying just be really honest and upfront and transparent and build the rapport with that person. And it's going to get you a lot further than any kind of sales wording or tricks that people might come up with. And it just feels better. Like for me, I use this, this initial tactic as a self-defense mechanism. You know, I, I think it's my manager says all the time, and I knew this before, but I love saying it the way he says it. Mr. Rogers says that if it's mentionable, it's manageable. And if you can't have the courage to own your job, which is sales in front of the prospect, it's going to bleed through everything you do 
that you're worried that's how they'll see you. And the moment you call it out, you, you kind of you remove all of the power that that holds over you and over the situation. Mm, yeah, that's a really good point. So when did you officially go into a sales role yourself? So I'm at Insight now, this IT support company, and it is my second official sales job. The first one was an, a commission-only job for a neighborhood magazine that was actually a really good company and a really cool product. I just didn't have the skills to understand what was going on in me and why I wasn't being successful. And nobody there could tell me why I wasn't successful. They didn't know either. Everyone said I was doing everything right. But what was really happening was for those seven months, I would follow all the steps. I would do the actions. I would say the scripts. But what was unaddressed was my own fear about the fact that I was a salesperson. And that's why I failed at that job is because I just, every, if you walk into a sales scenario and you can't have that complete confidence in yourself and what you're doing for a living, people, you don't pass the sniff test, which is what I say is people, they don't know what's wrong, but they know their subconscious, they go, something doesn't smell right here. And the moment they can't smell, then they call it a gut feeling and they go, man, it just didn't feel like that was the right product or this was the right guy. And, and they have that emotion and that emotion makes the decision for them. And then they justify it with logic. Well, the term of the contract was too long or it was too expensive, or I didn't like the product or, you know, the ad size in that magazine wasn't right or whatever. That's what, what they say to you. But what really happened in their subconscious is you didn't pass the sniff test. And so that's what was happening to me in that first job. Now, the, the really interesting thing is my job right before that is I owned my own photography company. And photography back in 2008 you know, to 2012 was not exactly an easy game. I mean, I would photograph weddings for like four or $5,000, which is still a lot of money, but it was a lot of money back then. And everyone on Craigslist is charging $500. And something like 20,000 people in the Bay Area would get a professional camera every Christmas. And you know, some percentage of them will start their wedding photography business and go to, you know, into, you know, go want to shoot that wedding. And what I realized now, what I realized now that I didn't realize in that first was this idea that I had a supreme confidence in my product and I wasn't afraid to tell people no. I would sit them down. And they'd say, Robert, we love your photography. Uh, we love the way you shoot weddings. We love your concepts around how your wife shoots them with you and the all day packages and everything. But man, you're $5,000. And this guy over here will do it for 500. And he does all the same stuff you do. And I would say, hey, um, Amy, Ben, I get it. I totally understand. I want you guys to pick a photographer that makes sense for you. Why don't we do this? You spend 15 minutes on their website. My wife and I are going to go make some coffee because this is like in my living room. We're going to go make some coffee and then I'm going to come back. Let's just do that. Okay. And he'd, you, you, I knew that they, there was no, there were not 15 minutes worth of photographs on that person's website. There was like 16 great shots from three weddings and that was it. And so we'd come back about 10 minutes later. I'm like, Hey, you guys wrapping up? They're like, yeah, good. Okay. Now here's the thing. Now I'm going to hand you a wedding album. There's actually six of them right here on my coffee table. Pick one, look through them. I'm going to go back and finish. And me, now me and my wife are going to go drink our coffee and then we're going to come back. 
And when I come back, if you can't tell the difference between that guy's photography and mine, I literally want you to book him right now. I will not let you leave my house. Uh, but if maybe you'd like mine more, if you can see the difference, then maybe it's worth spending the money. And, and people very rarely made it the whole 15 minutes. They'd call us back in in five. And uh, nine out of 10 would choose me. But one out of 10 would literally be like, you know what, Robert, I, I can't see it. I can't see it. Maybe he's twice as good or you're twice as good, but you're not 10 times better. And I'd be like, I get it. Book him right now. Tell him who sent you. And they would do that. And that's, and, but I had supreme confidence that I wanted to deliver value and I knew who wasn't valuable to me and who I couldn't be valuable to. So I shouldn't say not valuable to me because they're still valuable as people. They're just not going to give me money. If that makes sense. Am I, am I prattling on too much now? No, that is a really good story. And I think just, yeah, that confidence in your own ability. And like you said, not being afraid to lose a client that isn't right for you in the long run anyway, because not every single customer or client is going to be the right fit for our business. But I think we can get a bit caught up in just wanting to get every customer or client possible because, you know, you're worried about getting enough income that month, whatever it might be, that we don't disqualify the ones that really aren't going to be the right fit for our business. Yeah. And that's the hard thing about hard things. It's easy to say when you have money in the bank and a full pipeline and lots of people who are good fit that you're going to talk to next week. But when you have two weeks left to the end of the quarter and you have, this is your last appointment. And if these people don't buy from you, you might lose your job. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to tell someone no. And that's one of the most important things as far as I'm concerned about I guess not necessarily the most important things, but one of the most foundational things salespeople don't do is that, look, Stephen Covey says everything in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective uh, People, he says that everything is created twice, once in your mind and once in reality. And if you don't create things well in your mind, you will be subject to other people's first creation, as he calls it, the first creation in your mind and the second creation in reality. And this is what happens to salespeople, I believe, all the time is we get so bought into the company's needs, the conditions of my continued employment, how I make money, what my metrics are. We forget who we are and what's important to us. We forget about what we want our life to look like in general, what our values are, what matters to me, and we get caught up in I've got, I've got to hit these goals by the end of the week, end of the month, end of the year. And if I don't, I'll lose my job. And then my wife will divorce me and I'll lose my house. And my kids won't ever want to see me again. And I'll live in a van down by the river. Like this, this is what your brain tells you. And if you can't, if you have not done the work on yourself in that first creation, your company will eat you alive. And by the way, it's designed to, it, that's its job is as a salesperson to apply pressure to push you to reach your goals. And your job is to be a fortified object. So when the company pushes against you, you don't crumble. And by the way, even if you own your own company, the company's job is still to apply that kind of pressure. It's your job to be fortified and withstand it. Absolutely. So how do we start to balance that work on ourselves and have that 
self-belief, I suppose, in ourselves to go out and do our job, make those sales without that voice in our head, just making it all fall to pieces. Yeah. That voice in your head, man, that, that idea, the voice we call it, me and my friend, we call it the chorus of voices. And then, you know, when you're laying in bed at night, you're starting to fall asleep and you remember every dumb thing you've ever done in your life. I'm sure that's not unique to me. You hear that chorus of voices singing bad things to you and come learning your, like learning how to fight those, that chorus of voices is absolutely foundational uh, in my opinion to be successful. Again, not everybody needs that. That's what I need though. So I don't want to talk too much about my own winning lottery ticket again, but for me, I have some, I have two things I rely on. One, I'm a faith guy. So I believe in a higher power. There's somebody I can run to when I feel like I'm stuck. But the second one is this idea. I have what I call an I goal statement. I didn't make it up. It's not unique, but it's this idea that I think about the best version of myself, what I want to be, who I want to represent in this world. And what I do is I write it out. I write out the perfect version of me, me on my best day. It's about five sentences long. I don't know if I'm willing to share it because it's kind of personal, uh, but what it does is it represents what I want to be in my, as my best self. And then I literally write that every day. I'd look like if you found some of my notebooks, it'd look like a crazy person because it's an entire notebook of just the same five sentences over and over and over and over again with a date above it. It looks like a crazy person. But what happens is I need someone telling me that I am that person every day because nobody else is going to do it. My wife loves me. She's not going to do it. My kids love me. They're not going to do it. My boss won't do it. I need to do it. And there's literal behavioral science behind it in psychology that says if you write it with your hand and you say it out loud and your ears hear it, that after a while, your brain believes it. That's why negative self-talk is so bad. Because when you say these things out loud, there's actual science that says neural pathways are activated and ingrained that when your ears hear it, your brain six months later can't tell if a stranger told you or you said it. And in fact, if you hear it a hundred times, your brain can't tell if it was one person saying it a hundred times or a hundred people saying it. Your brain doesn't know the difference. We don't have the ability to have that kind of chain of custody of information. It doesn't exist. And so if you can find a way for me, that's my, my winning lottery ticket. I found that if I write it and I read it and I say it, after a while, my brain starts to believe it. And it didn't happen right away. But the first sentence of my I goal statement is, I am a disciplined sales professional that makes a plan and sticks to it. And I can tell you, I started writing that. And when I looked back a year later, I could say it was more true then than when I started. It's not measurable. How do you measure, measure disciplined? But I could look at things in my life and go, I am more disciplined. I do make plans and stick to them much better than when I wrote that the first time. So I have proof for me that this works. That is fantastic. That is also building that identity in yourself that you want to become. And like you said, if you're focusing on the negative things and saying those negative things to yourself out loud, that also brings more of those negative things and negative focuses. And then if you try and go into a sales call or meet someone with fear and negativity in the forefront of your mind, then that person's going to pick up on that and you're not going to feel confident to go into that and be successful 
because you've mm-hmm. got all these negative forces that are standing in the way. You won't pass the sniff test at all. Absolutely not. I also want to talk about something that is a little bit to the side of sales, but you also have a background in performance and music and you're in bands. So tell me a little bit about this other part of your life. Oh gosh, you really should take some of that off my LinkedIn. I enjoy finding these other yeah. aspects of people. <laughs> so I, I come from a long line of musicians. My All my siblings mostly play instruments and sing. My brother is a worship leader at a church. You know, I've been in like 50 off-Broadway performances. I was in a band. And so, I mean, this is always just a part of my life growing up. And after I completed my first year of college, my dad, his, I don't know the full story because I just love him and I don't want to bring it up. I know it's painful, but something happened in the dot-com bust and suddenly I was required to pay for college. And I was not prepared. I didn't have what was necessary to do that. And in fact, I remember showing up for the first day, trying to get back into classes I had been kicked out of because there wasn't the money to pay for them and how hopeless it felt. And because I was, you know, 19 and stupid when that happened, I just ran away. I I like not quite literally when I ran away from home at first, but for about two months, I just dove in deep with my, my, this band I was in and Somewhere around about two months later, my dad said, Hey, I need your, I need your, your transcript for the insurance. If you're going to stay on my insurance. I'm like, I'm not going to school. He's like, what? You're not going to school. I'm like, well, are you paying for it? And he's like, what? And it just didn't, it didn't go well. And, and then like a week later, I moved to Anaheim, California, which is like 400 miles away just because I didn't want to deal with it. And the band was moderately successful. We made, made enough money to get by. And I had a season pass at Disneyland, thanks to mom. And it was, uh, it was a unique experience, but it wasn't more than just a stopgap. I mean, it, don't get me wrong, Mike and Josh, if you're listening to this, it was a fantastic experience, but it was just a holding pattern. And at some point, this is one of those fun things about becoming an adult, especially now I've got three kids. You, you find yourself, how do I say this? So here's an analogy somebody explained to me once. It says, when you're young, it's like learning how to fish. Okay. And you, I'm not much of a fisherman, but the idea is you you go to all these different places and try out different kinds of fish, different kinds of fishing, you know, capture doing, you know, try and catch different fish, different lures, different, do I like rivers? Do I like lakes? Do I like the ocean? Do I like boats? What do I want? And then you do that for like your twenties ish. And somewhere in your thirties, you go, you know, it's time to figure out how to be I don't want to fish every hole anymore. I want to find out how to be the greatest fisherman in this fishing hole. And you sit down and, and you go, well, now I'm going to spend the next decade or two just getting really good at what I like to do. Maybe you realize I'm not a big river guy. I like boats more. I don't like the big ocean boats. I like the lake boats where you're not getting rocked around because I got seasick or whatever. I don't know. Really rocking the metaphor hard on this one. But the idea is at some point, I realized I love music. It's always going to be a part of me, but there are only so many hours in the day and I'm just not, I'm going to make way more money doing it than I will ever make doing music. And so I feel comfortable um, making decisions that lead away from music. So I don't know if this is is another one I've made up or probably stole from someone. I don't know. There's decisions and there's choices. And I'm probably getting this wrong based on the 
etymology of the words, but I go choices are who I want to be. I make choices about what I want in life. One of those choices is I don't want my wife to have to work. She can if she wants, but I don't want her to ever feel like she has to put her kids in daycare. Otherwise we'll lose our house. So when I make that choice, the decision to stop playing music gets really easy because playing music, diving into music, keeping fresh with my bass guitar playing and my singing and keeping those skills really well honed and sharp doesn't make the choice possible because I can, I can solidify the benefit of that choice by working harder at my job than maybe starting a podcast that someday has an audience that people, I don't know, put ads on. I don't know. I haven't figured out how to monetize that yet. But so for, so for me, it gets that decision to not do something I actually love. It's just super easy because it doesn't make the choices, it doesn't line up with the choices I, I want. Another really good one is I, I believe that I'm always going to be in sales, some capacity for the rest of my life. So the choice is I'm going to treat myself as an actual professional, like an attorney or a CPA. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit myself to continuing education. And no one licenses me for that. I can't lose my sales license. But I also know that I want to be better at it tomorrow than I was today. And so if that's the choice, the decision to stop playing video games, even though I really love them, even though my son wants me, my son and my daughter love to sit on my lap while I play video games, which is great. Because if you can imagine holding a controller, you can fit a kid on either side and you just hug them and play video games. I mean, that's my happy place, but it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So, and I'm not going to lie. We do it, you know, once a week or so for an hour, but the decision to not play video games gets really easy because I've chosen to be a sales professional. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I really love that takeaway and that perspective of looking at it as well. Robert, for another salesperson who might be struggling a little bit in their career, what is the biggest takeaway you want someone to get from this episode? Yeah, I think the understanding and looking around and kind of trying to get that 30,000 foot view of your why, you know, the W-H-Y. Simon Sinek talks about this, but he does it in the context of companies and finding their why. But I think it's every bit as important for us as well. I remember my CEO once telling me, this idea that you want to make enough money so you can do the things you want for your family and your kid and maybe retire early or whatever your goal is, that's a really crappy why. I mean, and the reason is because A, it burns dirty. It's a very inefficient fuel because it's very self-centered. Yeah, it's for your kids, but it's really so your kids can look at you and go, wow, what a good dad. Like it's very, so it's an inefficient fuel. That's the first thing because no one can help you with that. It's all on you. So you don't get any kind of economy of scale because no one is ever going to be as interested in it as you are. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is it's exhaustible. It's a finite resource. At some point, you'll either decide you have enough and there goes your why, or you're going to decide it's too much work to achieve. And the job, when you're sitting across that hundred, cold calls you got to make 
or that extra prospecting you got to do or that networking event or whatever it is that is your big, hairy, scary thing. If your why is about your own needs, then the pain of doing the hard thing seems just as scary as the negative outcome of not doing the thing. And so again, it's, it's inefficient fuel and it's exhaustible. So I know that at my company, one of the cool things is I know that if I hit a certain amount in sales, if I close a big enough deal, if I exceed my, my goals for the year, I know X amount of dollars equals X amount of people we get to hire. I've closed deals before that were big enough that they had to go hire a person to pick up some of the extra slack in the organization. And I can look at that person and go, that person works here because of what I do. And I get to meet them in an orientation. And I can bring in, I know that when I meet my goals at my company, people get promotions they've been working for for years because Insight hires people and then gives them a development plan. So they know in 18 months, if I do this and this and this and this and this, I can have this job. Well, they, they don't get that if we're not growing. Like the, the department manager has to say, well, sorry, you did everything you were supposed to do, but the sales guys didn't. So, you know, until somebody quits, you're, you're kind of stuck where you are. Like, that's terrible. And so this, this, if this fuel, it, it burns a little cleaner because again, it's not just my needs. It's the needs of these people around me. Um, and it also is quite inexhaustible because the more I sell, the more people we get to hire, which gives me more momentum. It is, it's kind of like this perpetual motion machine. And so I don't know if that answers your question or not, but find a good why, you know, and if you need help with that, any salesperson listening to this, which is everybody, because we're all salespeople, feel free to reach out to me. I actually have a bit of a specialty in helping people find this. I'm not, you know, it's not what I do for a living, so I can't guarantee anything, but I'd be happy to help anybody walk through this if they're interested. Mm, that definitely, that's a great answer to that question. And we do love talking about the why over here on this podcast as well. So if someone does want to connect with you, where can we find you? Yeah, the easiest way to hunt me down is LinkedIn. I'm in Robert Gillette. I don't think there's too many of us out there, but there's there's enough. But I'm the young one who's in IT. Also, you can email me at reclaimingsales.com. There's a contact page that goes direct to my inbox and I answer as many of those as I can. Fantastic. Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been really great to talk to you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me on Mindset Mastery. You can connect with Robert through the links in the show notes below and also listen to his podcast, Reclaiming Sales. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please share it with one person who will also benefit from what we talked about. Until next time, remember, we are only limited by what we believe we are limited.